Uh, did you send this to me or was this one that I sent to you about, um, about Warby Parker? Uh, and you know, what blew my mind, uh, I, did I yeah. send that? I think you sent it to me. Yeah. I, so what blew my did, mind yeah. about it was that, um, I want to, gosh, where was the highlight? The, the, uh, um, yeah, so, the, so Warby Parker this summer uh, set out for an IPO filing. And so they have to disclose a whole lot of information. And so like the big headline was that their net revenue rose in 2020 uh, to like 390, mm-hmm. about $394 million, which is the most that they've ever had. But they had a loss during that time of like 50, almost $56 million. So what is that? So like to, yeah, to yeah. break even. And so I, I started thinking about like, well, our practices, let's say you have, so first of all, Warby Parker has this huge name recognition. They're generating almost $400 million a year and they can't, they're not making money. And that's not just this year. It was, it, I think it was like three years in a row, something like that. And, and their explanation was they haven't, they haven't scaled big enough and found the efficiencies yet in their model. What, what does that say to you? I, it's all confounding to me because you see this not only in, in Warby Parker, you see it in other realms of, of this quote unquote disruptive technology. Yes. And, um, I, I know one of my, I actually have a relative who, who got their master's degree in sustainability. And one of their professors uh, was adamant that we actually haven't had any disruptive technology since the kind of the internet started. The rest of it's just, kind of a, a shell game of moving around, uh, moving around parts and pieces, trying to skirt and some, some businesses trying to skirt some regulations and things like that. And I'm not saying Warby Parker skirting regulations, but um, it's a business that, uh, you know, they get money from other people on a promise of a delivery. So yeah, if we, you know, if we could get people to invest in our business outside of our patients um, because we're good at what we do, uh, well, then you have a whole other revenue stream besides seeing patients and treating patients and 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 whatnot. And and it it is crazy to me that I don't even know how long Warby Parker's been around now. Eleven they, years almost. They still ten or eleven it. years. And they still haven't made money. Eleven years, and they still yeah. And I think it goes back. Hopefully, from a, a practitioner side of things, it goes back to the idea of um, yes, you can you can choose to uh, dispense less quality materials, less quality frames and, and try to compete just on price versus trying to compete on service and value and, and outcomes. Um, and there might be a spot for that for patients that need backup glasses and things like that. But any of these businesses that cut out the quote unquote middleman, what they're, they're cutting out is they're cutting out the service. They're cutting out the ability to help get the patient what they need, when they need it, how they need it, help take care of a problem. When you, when you cut down on price, you have less, uh, you have less room to, to help if there's a, a mistake or a non-adapt or things of those natures that we run into every day in our opticals. Um, and they're kind of stuck holding the, uh, holding the bag, so to speak. And so, you know, we've seen, they've had to open clinics uh, so that people could come in opticals so people could come in and get their glasses taken care of. Um, you know, one of my, I, my office. Well, hold manager, on. I want to, I want to elaborate. Hold that guy. thought just a second, yeah. Drew, because you made a point about yeah, the yeah. stores that they have. So, so right. They're doing about $400 million on all their online business plus 145 stores, physical stores. Right. So oh, if man. you look at, yeah. you know, I think the yeah. MBA metrics now are 
something like, you know, the average independent solo doc practice is generating someplace between seven hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars, something like that per year. So if you just did mm -hmm. like that's an if if that were an average, right? So if I can't do the math really quickly, but 145,000, let's say it's 150 million, let's take a little bit off. So let's say it's 130, they should be doing, if they were doing average independent practice, right? With no other, no other uh -huh. like marketing, you know, they have this huge marketing behind them. They should just on those stores alone be doing probably something like, you know, 125 million just from those stores. And then the whole other online sales right. component is is driving just the difference. I mean, that that seems just bananas. To me. Hello and welcome to the Chris Will Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Drew Bateman, one of my good friends. Uh, and we talked about uh, the president's COVID mandate. We uh, talked about some of the issues surrounding Warby Parker and their um, lawsuit with or 1-800's lawsuit against them and their IPO. And so um, I had a great conversation with Drew. I, I love talking to Drew because we don't always see the eye to eye and we take different positions on things. And um, I always grow from those conversations. I hope Drew grows from them too. I, I think he uh, oftentimes articulates things better than I do, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. Well, I um, I wanted to have you on and talk a couple about a couple things that you and I have been kind of going back and forth about over the last few weeks. And the first one was sure. uh, probably the the one that's most pertinent is this this mandate that came down. Obviously, uh, that the president kind of pushed out. And I want to summarize this PCS, um, who I've had uh, Joe Deloche on the podcast before, and he did a really nice job of summarizing. Uh, a lot of it, this of course at this point is speculation, but he did a good job summarizing what they put out in their press release. And of course the devil is in the details, but you know, the, a couple things in terms of that, that are impactful to optometry is obviously uh, the order has six components, mandatory vaccination of all healthcare workers. So I'm reading from PCS's website. I'll link to it. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes today. All employees of businesses with more than 100 employees. Uh, all federal employees required paid time off for employees to get vaccinated, proof of vaccination for all large-scale venues, concerts, sporting events, etc. Uh, that, that probably is most pertinent to our practices. When I look through here, though, what's really interesting to me is, like, of the six things, uh, there's one thing with no other bullet points, like no other explanation from, from uh, or expansion at this point that I've seen uh, from from the administration is improved care for those with COVID, right? So like like all these other five things are, are for prevention. And then there's one thing about like, let's get it better at, at taking sure. care of people because clearly we are. Um, so anyway, I wanted to get your reaction right. to, to that. And 
and see what your thoughts are about it. Um, well, those are good questions. I mean, you know, the, the vaccine, um, I think has, has shown a, um, a great improvement, but we certainly aren't at the numbers of where we need to be as far as, as preventing spread of the, of COVID at this point in time. And so, um, you know, I think initially we needed to, uh, wait and kind of make sure evidence came out in terms of safety and whatnot from a, a vaccination standpoint. And so now I think there's been something like 300 million doses or something like that that have been administered. So uh, I am not an epidemiologist or medication researcher by any means, but my understanding is uh, it has now at this point in time become one of the more um, data-driven vaccine rollouts uh, in history um, as far as monitoring safety and efficacy and, and, and in the period of time that they've been able to do that. So um, once the vaccine uh, got to a point that, that you could confirm that there was safety and yeah, sure, there's some side effects that, that happen with, with it, just like any vaccine or medication. Um, the data at this point in time, I think, shows that that is not uh, that is on a very, very small scale compared to side effects and, and long term issues that are emerging as far as COVID is concerned. And so the next step is as a as a society from a public health standpoint, um, what needs to be done so that we can try to get this thing tamped down once and for all, at least to a point where we aren't having hospitalizations that are being compromised because there's not space for regular things that are happening, not even the COVID stuff, uh, whether you're talking about COVID and, and whatnot. I mean, locally, we've already, there's already been situations of car accidents where people were, were seriously hurt and had to wait in cafeteria here in Lincoln until they could mm. get treatment because there wasn't space available. So um, I think it goes to a greater public health discussion and, and again, resources, not just uh, COVID such a hot button topic. Right. So mm. um it, it's being looked at from a lens of like just COVID, but looking at it from a greater standpoint, there's, there is plenty of evidence in history that goes back uh, a long, long time. I mean, back to George Washington, where there were vaccines that were mandated because of the greater public health and the greater good to the public health. And um, I read something recently when it comes to optometry specifically, just talking about it from the, the business side of things. And, and, um, lost uh, patient appointments, lost service to patients uh, based on missed time. They're starting to be able to aggregate some of that data of, of staff having been out, um, doctors having to have been out, uh, clinics that have had to close because of this, because of COVID and, and the possibility of transmission and whatnot. Um, and those numbers are starting to get pretty, pretty high. I'll have to try to track that down, see if I can send it back over to you. But, yeah, I'd love um, to see that. Yeah, it's also, yeah. You know, it's a new world that we haven't, the the United States or America has been through before, but for those of us that weren't around, um, you know, this is new. We've ne we've never had to go through something like this before, you know, and um, we're all learning as we go, for sure. You know, I'm not. Um, I'm actually not. You know, you and I take a slightly different political like position, and I'm. I don't think that. I think that sure. definitely COVID has become very political, in terms of like who mm -hmm. likes this and who likes that. Part of that is just sure. people's approach to like being told what to do, um, and being able to assess sure. their own risk. Uh, I'm not really opposed in general or in principle to like mandatory vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. What 
What makes me concerned about this, however, is just that there are specific risk categories that probably should be considered. Things like prior infection. Um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, I've heard some people try to say that even a vaccine on top of natural immunity is, um, is better. But the studies I've seen is like not even a percentage better to be vaccinated on top of having natural immunity. So like that's one thing. The other thing is is young people who have no other pre-existing conditions and I know they can still get sick, but they can get sick from RSV and they're not mandating a vaccine for RSV or cre creating a vaccine for RSV. They again, this isn't the flu, it's clearly not the flu, but um but that we don't mandate young people get flu vaccines. Um, and the flu kills more, more, uh, young people than COVID does. So, uh, it's, it, I think the challenge here is obviously we don't want our healthcare systems overwhelmed, but I'm not convinced that a mandate is going to, on the one hand, really, really like do a whole lot or probably should be done for, you know, I guess my point is, is there's people that ought to assess their own risk, assess the risk of those around them. And at some point we have to say, if you, if you don't care about, like if you don't care about that, then um, then that's on you. And and if you've assessed your risk because you you know maintain a healthy BMI or you can maintain a healthy BMI and you can um, and you are young and you don't have any pre-existing conditions and like I don't know and you've had COVID. Why why do we need to make those people jump through the same hoops as somebody who is 85 years old who has diabetes and heart disease and has a BMI of 30? Like clearly they're they they're going to be more at risk, and if they choose not to protect themselves, then uh, you know then then it's got to be on them at some point, right? Now that would be different. Where I would support like you look, everybody's got to get vaccinated. It's like you have something like Ebola that's like spreading like wildfire through the population and kills fifty percent of everybody, no matter what their risk category is. That that makes sense to me, right? But like, but um. But I, I, I was just looking at the Methodist um, update from, from so the I, whole Methodist system in Omaha right now. Um, there's the, the most recent update I have is of, as of not even a week ago. Um, and there's 40, 40 yeah. COVID positive patients in the hospital. So, I mean, I know we're not, we're, Omaha's not Lincoln, but 40 mm -hmm. positive cases in the entire hospital system. That includes Methodist, that's, that's the entire hospital system within Methodist. Um, of those, just to give you numbers, there's 29 unvaccinated. So 11 vaccinated, 29 unvaccinated. Uh, there are, um, now again, this is just an N of, of Omaha, right? Um, there are 19 in the ICU. No, excuse me, 13 in the ICU and four on vents. Half of the ones sure. on vents are, um, are vaccinated, half are unvaccinated. Uh, really, if you're in the ICU, I mean, it's pretty clear if you if you want to stay out of the ICU, although there's two vaccinated patients in the ICU um, and, and 11 that are unvaccinated. But, but the bottom line is, if you want to stay out of the ICU, chances are you're going to have a good chance of staying out of the ICU if you're if you're vaccinated. I guess my whole my whole thing is like mandates, right? Like mandates. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to the vaccine or, you know, I think it's I think you should get it if especially if you're in certain age categories, but just the forcefulness of it. And then I'll, I'll, and then there's a pragmatic aspect of it as well. Is I just don't think I think people will figure out ways to not have to get it, even with a mandate.
Sorry, I got muted there. One thing, um, one thing I kind of want to go back to is is the idea of you know the young person, low BMI, and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I think one of the problems with COVID at this point in time is that it has been looked at from the standpoint of the individual. Um, how does this affect this person specifically? Um, and anytime you go into a large, uh, very contagious, especially like the Delta variant or whatnot, uh, the evidence is there that it is affecting the young, healthy person much more than the previous ones. And the idea with the virus and, and, and getting the vaccines going, um, I kind of think of it uh, like the plight of the polar bears, right? So viruses can mutate, the viruses can grow, um, they can change. Um, Polar bears, uh, if, you've, if you've seen any of the uh, data about polar bears, uh, they are uh, starting to drown because the ice is getting pushed further away. Hmm. Ice is just, there's just less of it. So they go out to fish and then they drown because they can't get to. Oh, that is the same way for COVID. COVID gets expelled from a person. If it can't land on another person or get inhaled by another person, it drowns and goes away. When you use a vaccine, you are pushing the ice further away. Even the young, healthy person that can carry it and spread it to someone else and they don't have any problems, they don't have any health risk. That's great for that person. But as far as the virus spreading within our population and mutating and growing, we have to try to slow that down as much as possible. And, um, you know, COVID, I would, I would, I would compare it as opposed to any, like you said, it's not the flu. Um, it's more similar to the other risky things that we have vaccinated against and children get vaccinated against in school every year. And and has been that way for a long time. So the, I'm trying to wrap my mind around. So in the, in a mandatory vaccine scenario, we're vaccinating mm-hmm. people who have had previous infections and we're vaccinating people who have very low risk from the disease themselves. Your mm-hmm. contention is that by doing that, you're, you're minimizing the spread. Although what we're being told right now is that 99% of all COVID that's, that is, is in existence in the United States is Delta variant. And we're also being told that the mm-hmm. Delta variant, the, the vaccine does protect you from serious disease, um, and yet it doesn't protect you from spreading COVID or really getting COVID symptom or or even getting COVID. Maybe you don't have symptoms or maybe you have minimal symptoms. Uh, that's probably pretty clear. But who are we protecting then by vaccinating the young people or forcing them to be vaccinated um, in those populations or people who have already had COVID? I guess that's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around. If if all we have left is sure. Delta, then uh, and Delta is spread among people who are vaccinated to other people who are vaccinated and from people who are not vaccinated to people who are vaccinated, who are we protecting? Well, that's a good question, but I, I, I don't know the data specifically on this, but that would be true if that were a one-to-one correlation, right? If you were vaccinated and you spread COVID as easily as if you weren't vaccinated. Right. Um, but I don't think that's what the data has shown. The data hasn't shown that it's a, it's a one-to-one correlation. And, you know, I think, I think the other, the other issue, uh, as far as, um, the dosage of the virus that it takes to infect someone um, as far as the amount that the person expels that then has to be inhaled by the other person, um, which the research has shown affects how sick the person gets also mm-hmm. besides mm-hmm. any vaccines or things like that. Um, you know, 
I would suspect based on the data that we're seeing in terms of positive tests of who's testing positive uh, with vaccinated versus who's testing positive unvaccinated under COVID, um, that there, the numbers would bear out a fairly high percentage of the people that are uh, testing positive are unvaccinated versus the vaccinated based on the data that's being released uh, currently. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what, that's my, that's my point in all of this, I think, is that I'm not challenging that, that the vaccine works. I'm not even challenging that the vaccine lowers rates of, of serious illness among all, even including Delta. Um, What I'm saying is if, if, if somebody has an opportunity to get a vaccine Mm -hmm. uh, and they Mm -hmm. don't, and we're protecting the people who want to get a vaccine by getting a vaccine, why do we need to make everybody else get one if they've either had the disease or don't want to get the vaccine for whatever reason? I'm just, I guess it's just fundamentally like, look, we, we're in a situation now where if you want to be vaccinated, you can be. If you don't want to be, you don't have to be, and you're probably going to get sicker, right? And you're probably, you have more risk for winding up in the hospital. So it's sort of like at some point on you, and then a, a, a mandate sort of takes us to this point of, well, the people who, again, is this going to compel people to, to get a vaccine who otherwise weren't going to? Maybe, maybe. I wonder at this point why they were still kind of standing on the sidelines. But, um, but more, it, it, it's, um, it, just, it just seems like a, a maybe unnecessary, right? Unnecessary um, push because we're protecting those who want to be protected, I guess, is the point. Yeah, um, I think part, though, about the uh, protecting those that want to be protected, again, goes back to the idea of, of public health and, the, and the, the public health, not the individual health, and having this, trying to get the virus stamped down to a point that it's it's just not an issue anymore, just like the smallpox virus. When, when does issue, that happen? You know, for the most part at this point. In your mind, when does that happen? Uh, that's... Uh, I, I mean, I think based on the data that has been released is that we have a chance at getting that done once we can get um, 70% of the entire population vaccinated. Hmm. That's just based on what I have read. Hmm. And that's whether, I mean, it, and you can't, so vaccinated versus getting it naturally. Um, hey, naturally, that's that's okay too, if as long as you don't have the bad reaction to it, right? But as a public health side of things, we don't know the person who says they've had it or whatnot, um, we don't know when, you know, when that happened or how that happened. So if you're, if you're looking at it from a a reducing it as a public health side of things, um, you know, I think there's also been research that showed that natural immunity is great short term, but it doesn't last necessarily as long. Mm. Uh, There's also been, there's also been evidence of people who are superhuman natural immunity responders to, to getting the vaccine or to getting, right. Uh, getting a vaccine. They're talking about that infected. as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a small set of people that have actually shown to have this incredible response to having gotten COVID and, and that their, their uh, immune system responds just uh, at, a, at a very high level to it and, and the likelihood of them getting it. Now we don't know how long that lasts either uh, at that point in time. And so Right now, we're getting all these people that are vaccinated or vaccinated or have had it at different points and times, right? And so, um, you 
have to try to get that 70% level. Uh, again, not an epidemiologist or public health official, but uh, that is from what I've read, that is, is what would the goal would need to be is to get, to get any kind of natural immunity. You either have to have 70% get the virus or 70% get COVID slash vaccinated at that point in time. And, and because we don't know how to track who's had COVID or like when the COVID they had COVID and when it started or whatnot, that's where then your best bet at trying to figure that out is, is the mandate is hmm. I guess my understanding of it. Interesting. Well, I think um, what I'll, I'm going to leave it here because I, I think we could probably keep going. And, and like you said, we're not epidemiologists. Yeah. We're not virologists. We're basically business owners who are in yeah. healthcare and we're trying to figure out what's, what's, um, What's how how our businesses are going to be impacted? I can tell you that if one of my employees came to me and had a a medical exemption or a religious exemption, mm-hmm. I don't know that like I would have to accept it because I'm in no place to say like to say like well this isn't legitimate or this isn't a sincere hell belief. I'm in no place to do that, and so like I don't sure. when I think about like these types of mandates, it's like well that's going to force you to have to do documentation. And my concern is all right. Well, mm-hmm. just like the security uh, risk analysis that we do in our practices, are we going to be uh, audited in two or three years? And somebody comes back and says, well, how do you know this is a, a legitimate uh, medical exemption? I don't know. I, who? But that's a First Amendment thing. I'm not going to I'm not going to mess with that. So anyway, I guess my yeah. point is, is like the practical side of this is being forced down to businesses and, and that's going to be really mm-hmm. hard to actually have a, a change. Cause I would suspect that at this point, most people, uh, who aren't getting the vaccine have some sort of pretty strongly held, most of them probably have a pretty strongly held belief in either their their previous exposure, their previous infection, or some other reason why they wouldn't want to get it. And I don't know that if they handed me a sheet of paper that said, this is my sincerely held belief, or a doctor's note that says that mm-hmm. they can't get the vaccine, like I'm not challenging that. It's going to work, right? So I think that that's the pragmatic standpoint oh, yeah. of a mandate like this. And then the only other thing, the only other comment that I think is really interesting, because in all of this, it has illuminated to me um, this idea of people's different approaches. Like, so you said, well, look, if you had COVID and you get the vaccine, there are these instances of people who get superhuman immunity, right? And like, to me, that's very anecdotal. And it would be as anecdotal as, but but hold on, let me make this point because, because for me, because my point would be like, yeah, you'd, you'd say, um, you'd say, well, Chris, but, uh, a young, healthy 25 year old with, with a normal BMI and no pre existing conditions, they've died. And I would say, yeah, that's, that's anecdotal. Right. But like, or you might say, well, that's totally anecdotal and dismiss that, that as an issue, especially if it was like the flu or something else. My point is, is that I we have different perspectives and our perspectives in these allow us to to kind of say is that an important thing for me do I need superhuman immunity or is that some some reason to vaccinate all these people who have had covid before because of the potential for superhuman immunity to me isn't compelling just like to you it's not compelling to not vaccinate people who are young and healthy um, because their risk is so low so i think it's just an interesting observation that in all of this a mandate doesn't it it, it completely ignores that that difference between your perspective yeah. on the potential for superhuman immunity and my perspective on it so to clarify what i said before though was not 
having COVID and getting the vaccine was create superhuman immunity. What I what I said was um, that there, there's been some research that has shown a few people that have had the COVID infection, their body actually generated a superhuman uh, kind of super immune mm, response. Mm, mm. Um, that's not not getting co- not with the vaccine. Um, oh, I've heard I've have, heard the other way a, too. It's a low number. Yeah. Okay. So oh, I've gotcha. heard the other way yeah, too, where not, you get sorry, COVID and then you get. Yeah, so I, that's what I was yeah. assuming you were talking about. That's my fault. Gotcha. No, so, no, no, no. This was a yeah person with that. So yeah, no, I get what you're saying completely. And 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 again, I would I the only contention a little bit in terms of of how I'm uh, of what I'm talking about is is again the vaccine for the young healthy persons not because they're necessarily at risk in terms of death as as much as the older person the higher bmi um it is to again just reduce the their ability to spread it to other people yeah um, at that point in time yeah I mean, and i think and i think um I'll, I'm a, I'll give you the last word on this but i think my my response to that from from the evidence i've seen mm-hmm. is that the there there might be a slight difference in in the volume of of uh, Delta. But my understanding is the reason we started masking up again, even if you've been vaccinated, is because the volume mm-hmm. of Delta in your nas- nasopharyngeal passages is basically the same whether you've been vaccinated or not been vaccinated. That was my understanding. Uh, and that, that came out of um, of some evidence. I think Fauci cited it in July or, or whatever. But, but the point is, is that um, now whether or not th- we don't know which which is your point? We don't know whether or not that that means that you're going to spread it more or less if you're um, if you're vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but um, but that's that's what I would say is we just don't know if if it is the case that we're lowering the total amount of virus at this point with what is currently being spread with Delta, um, and it yeah so that that would be my only other comment on 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 your comment of evidence, but I'll give you the last word and then we can kind of move on to the next topic. So I can be respectful of your time. Oh yeah. No, no problem. No problem. I, I do think I totally agree with you as far as the, like figuring out how to do this all from a business standpoint. Right. I, I do think though that the um, you know, the mandate doesn't go against medical. If, if you have a, a, a legitimate medical note and it's laid out pretty directly of what mm-hmm. that entails. And for the medical note, it's not that much really. So I would think from a business ownership standpoint, if you have the documentation for that medical note and keep it on file that even in two years of something changed, like, all right, I've got what was laid out for us to have to document. Um, I've, I've heard other exemptions are, are, def, are actually a little harder to, to get or whatnot or, or to show. Um, but from a documentation standpoint, I guess that would be my, my, my only, piece of advice is just make sure you've got the documentation. I think PCS even lays out what that documentation needs to be for both a medical or like say a religious exemption or whatnot and, and have it there. Um, but I, I don't suppose it's any different than mandates or vaccine mandates that have gone down from, from a business ownership standpoint. And, and hopefully, we can figure it out the way they figured it out if, if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next month or two uh, with our businesses on this. Uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to bring you in, Drew, to talk about, because I think you've got really good perspective here is, uh, did you send this to me or was this one that I sent to you about um, about Warby Parker? Uh, and, you know, what blew my mind, I, uh, did I send yeah. that? I think you sent it to me. Yeah. I, so what blew my did, mind yeah. about it was that um, I want to, 
gosh, where was the highlight? The the uh, um. Yeah, so, the, so Warby Parker this summer uh, set out for an IPO filing. So they have to disclose a whole lot of information. And so like the big headline was that their net revenue rose in 2020 uh, to like 390, mm. about $394 million, which is the most that they've ever had. But they had a loss during that time of like 50, almost $56 million. So what is that? So like to, yeah, to yeah, break yeah. even. And so I, I started thinking about like, well, our practices, let's say you have, so first of all, Warby Parker has this huge name recognition. They're generating almost $400 million a year and they can't, they're not making money. And that's not just this year. It was, it, I think it was like three years in a row, something like that. And, and their explanation was they haven't, they haven't scaled big enough and found the efficiencies yet in their model. What, what does that say to you? I, it, it's all confounding to me because you see this not only in, in Warby Parker, you see it in other realms of, of this quote unquote disruptive technology. Yes. And, um, I, I know one of my, I actually have a relative who, who got their master's degree in sustainability and one of their professors uh, was adamant that we actually haven't had any disruptive technology since the kind of the internet started. The rest of it's just, Kind of a, a shell game of moving around, uh, moving around parts and pieces, trying to skirt and some some businesses trying to skirt some regulations and things like that. And I'm not saying Warby Parker skirting regulations, but um, it's a business that, uh, you know, they get money from other people on a promise of a delivery. So, yeah, if we, you know, if we could get people to invest in our business outside of our patients um, because we're good at what we do. Uh, well, then you have a whole other revenue stream besides seeing patients and treating patients and 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 whatnot. And, and it it is crazy to me that I don't even know how long Warby Parker's been around now. Eleven they, years almost. They still ten or eleven years. Jeez. They still haven't made money. Eleven years, and they still yeah. And I think it goes back. Hopefully, from a, a practitioner side of things, it goes back to the idea of um, yes, you can you can choose to uh, dispense less quality materials, less quality frames and, and try to compete just on price versus trying to compete on service and value and, and outcomes. Um, and there might be a spot for that for patients that need backup glasses and things like that. But any of these businesses that cut out the quote unquote middleman, what they're, they're cutting out is they're cutting out the service. They're cutting out the ability to help get the patient what they need, when they need it, how they need it, help take care of a problem. When you, when you cut down on price, you have less, uh, you have less room to, to help if there's a, a mistake or a non-adapt or things of those natures that we run into every day in our opticals. Um, and they're kind of stuck holding the, uh, holding the bag, so to speak. And so, you know, we've seen, they've had to open clinics uh, so that people could come in opticals so people could come in and get their glasses taken care of. Um, you know, one of my I, my office. Well, hold manager, on. I want to I want to elaborate. Hold that guy. thought just a second, yeah. Drew, because you made a point about yeah, the yeah. stores that they have. So so right, they're doing about four hundred million dollars on all their online business plus a hundred and forty five stores, physical stores, right? So okay. if you look at, yeah. you know, I think the yeah. MBA metrics now are something like you know the average independent solo doc practice is generating someplace between seven hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars, something like that per year. So if you just did mm -hmm. like that's an if if that were an average, right? 
So if I can't do the math really quickly, but 145,000, let's say it's 150 million. Let's take a little bit off. So let's say it's 130. They should be doing, if they were doing average independent practice, right. With no other, no other uh-huh. like marketing, you know, they have this huge marketing behind them. They should just on those stores alone be doing probably something like, you know, 125 million just from those stores. And then the whole other online sales right. component is is driving just the difference. I mean that that seems just bananas to me. Yeah. So sorry, I, I interrupted you, but but you made right. the point of those yeah. stores. It's just like, wow. But yeah, so your service and you're talking about yeah. your staff and your team. Oh yeah, yeah. So her her husband's a, a regional uh, regional tire distributor rep, um, and he just was talking about you know this is the same thing they've seen in in mechanics and auto mechanic mm. shops and auto in, in tire stores. You know like the tire racks of the world came online and started, yeah, you can get your tire directly from them, you know, your tire and rim even directly from them or whatnot. But now the, the, the tire, um, local tire shops have gotten, gotten smart. Okay. If they want to be around, they need to figure out a way to work with those types of people, you know, those types of people that are buying those, those tires online. So now you can order them online, bring them to them, but now you pay a, a fee, right. To, mm-hmm. to get your tires put on your cars before it was just part of getting the tires there. And, and we talk about that with glasses all the time. You know, if you, if you get glasses dispensed from us, the service of coming back, getting them adjusted and all of that stuff is, is part of getting them from us. And um, we certainly haven't gotten to the point yet that we've instilled, you know, a service fee that somebody could pay for an outside frame at that point in time, uh, or at this point in time. But those are the things I think that the general public, no matter what thing you're talking about, what widget you're talking about, they, <laughs> they kind of lose sight of the fact of, of getting at getting that taken care of and, and what you're getting by purchasing it uh, with somebody that is sitting in front of you and, and, taking care of you directly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this is kind of just to, to kind of summarize this. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to eat, they're starting to eat their own, right? Like this summer, 1-800-CONTACTS yeah. sued Warby Parker for trademark infringement over keyword ads. And, you know, they're, yeah. they're going after each other because they are seeing where they're, you know, just like us, like you and I, I don't know that we think of Warby Parker as our competition, or 1-800-CONTACTS really as our competition. I I mean, right. I don't know if that's bad thinking or um, maybe mm-hmm. I, I think, um, but I think the point is, is that they are certainly viewing each other as competition because they're they're buying ads for yeah. each other's keywords. Do you know anything about that? Did you, did I, did, I think you sent me that article. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know the details about it any further, but yes, to your point, they're starting to look at each other. And and I would, you know, I would contend to some degree, uh, you know, Warby Parker's perhaps not been the most terrible thing for, for clinics, because um, if you're doing it well and you're doing it right, I mean, I've certainly had a couple of patients that have tried to go that route and came back and said, hey, I'm not ever going to do that again. And um, or patient who said, hey, I needed something short term, but I'm here to get my good glasses <laughs> or, yeah, or whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, they've kind of forced us to look at how we do things internally and try to do them better. And, you know, so that's not necessarily all bad, but it is it is really interesting. Yes, that 1-800 has turned their sights on them. Um uh, you know, and, and in a realm where, you know, uh, 1-800's contacts, Warby Parker's glasses, they, for yeah. the most part. At you, this you'd think there'd be some synergies <laughs> there, right? That yeah. they, they, they could yeah. work together. So, but. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot in those big, 
those big tech entrepreneurial type trying to think it, look at things differently. Um, it's interesting because a lot of times I feel like it comes out of a, a singular person's problem with how, how something happened to them directly. Right. Hmm. Uh, so they went to try to solve a problem without understanding exactly what problem they were trying to solve at that point in time. And, and I, you know, me, I love technology. So, I mean, there's, there's parts of that stuff that's exciting and like, Oh my gosh, what if, what if we could do this? What if we could do this? You know? Um, but then when it comes into implementation and the practical nature of how it has to get used by the person, by the patient, um, sometimes that's a little harder. What's so weird to me is just that, you know, you and I, we've gotten, and I think, you know, if you're, if you're an optometrist period, if you, especially if you own your own practice, but, mm-hmm. but just in general, you know, you, you provide a service, you get paid, right? What was so weird to me about this is like you said, it's like 10 years. Could you imagine losing money for 10, for 10 years? Could you imagine losing <laughs> money for three years? Like even just the last three years of filings that yeah. they've had, like lose money, lose money, lose money. Oh. Like, and, and not just a little bit, but like a lot you know, I know people are like, everybody's working there is getting paid. So you could, in theory, you'd get paid as a optometrist, but you wouldn't get paid as a business owner. Right. But you lose money as a business owner. So right. you'd get paid less as an optometrist, of course. Right. Cause you're taking your optometry money to, to own your sure. business. I guess the point is, is like, it was so foreign to me when I saw that it's just like, it's such a weird thing. Cause you, cause we set up businesses and then generally, because this is how you and I have set up businesses before that business makes money then we grow the business, right? We reinvest in it. Then it makes some more money Mm -hmm. Then we reinvest in it Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, well, I haven't made money yet and we need more investment. It's just so weird. (laughs) So weird. I know it works. I mean, I know that's that's the way the system works. Just so fat, you know, just beyond me. But how long was it till, uh, you know, how long was it till Facebook made money? You know, I know when they went with their IPO, they had lost, you know, however many millions or, you know, billions of dollars at that point in time. Like, I just, though, you're right. And that's where I think the idea of the small business and, and how much that does underlie kind of our, our nation as far as economy um, is so important because it's just, a, it's a different concept of uh, hopefully profitable businesses for the small business owners, um, as opposed to a, a large business where people just keep dumping their extra money and investment uh, money into it um, with it, hopefully getting a return. And so I don't know, um, looking at the financials, if that loss also, you know, if, if you, if you took their full revenues, is that, is that taking, uh, losses, you know, um, on purpose to reduce, right. right. Reduce profit so that it looks differently too, uh, as far as tax purposes and those kind of things, maybe there's some, maybe there's some of that hidden in there, but not, what was it? 50, uh, 25 million, 56 million. Still yeah. Almost like 56 like million. That. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Jeez. other, the other yeah. part of it but that bothers me, I Unbelievable. guess. Yeah, it's just, it kind of, I mean, your last point where I think you and I, maybe we don't agree, but uh, where I think we could definitely agree from a political standpoint is, and I think this kind of wraps it up with a mm-hmm. bow, is is that, you know, obviously these companies are going to have to um, have to comply with the mandate. We're going to have to comply with the mandate because we're in healthcare. I think it's probably in some ways more burdensome on them because they have big infrastructures, but in some ways less burdensome because they have the infrastructures to deal with it. There are certain things that generally aren't fair. And once you get to be a big enough business, it makes it so that you don't have to be quite as fair. Where for us, you know, we make a mistake and we we lose money one, two, three years. That's it. We're done. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. oh, so yeah. I don't know. I guess that, I don't. I don't know what that means. It's yeah. just you know, just some of the regulations. It's sort like of like it, yeah. if you and I had, if you and I had to pay, what is it? What's the fine? Fourteen thousand dollars a week or something like that if we didn't comply. Um, they might be able to. Per I don't day, know. I think. Yeah, whatever it is. I mean, like <laughs> the same thing with like, okay, if I don't give a patient a contact lens prescription. And I did that right. on one day. For one day, I just never gave my contact lens patients a prescription. And the the FTC came after me. I think it's something like $10,000 per offense. I can't remember what it is, but it's a lot. Yeah. I could not withstand yeah. that storm. Yeah. 1-800-CONTACTS or Warby yeah. Parker doesn't do that for, I mean, they, they don't care. It's a drop in the bucket because it's, part, it's built into the, yeah. to the business model, right? And that's just an unfair, yeah. an unfair advantage that they have, I guess, to the point. Yeah. Yeah, it's like play, it's like playing with a different different set of rules, different set of physics. Um, you know, in terms of how they have to go about business. <laughs> yeah, Drew, thanks so much for doing this, man. Uh, this is the kind of conversation I love to have with you, and I know we'll get to have it in a yeah. couple weeks again. Um, yeah, thanks no, a thank lot. Thank you for having me on. I I love these conversations. <laughs>